0: You're listening to Reality San Francisco's weekly podcast. For more audio content or information, please visit us at realitysf.com. Um, okay, so if you have a Bible, please turn to 1 Corinthians 9 as you do that. Uh, oh, if you need a Bible, if you don't have one, please raise your hand. Um, okay, so 1 Corinthians chapter 9, we've been in a series in the series of 1 Corinthians, but we've been breaking up into small different chunks because Paul talks about different topics in 1 Corinthians. We finished uh, a little series on uh, marriage and singleness and sexuality, and then the topic turned and changed to food sacrifice to idols, which none of us really deal with on a day-to-day basis. But what it allowed us to do was launch into a discussion about How does a follower of Christ who lives in a city like Corinth or like San Francisco, there's a lot of similarities between Corinth and San Francisco, how does a Christian live in a secular society or a secular culture, a pagan culture, but still live as a follower of Jesus? And so we looked at um, how love um, builds up but knowledge puffs up. A couple weeks ago, last week, we looked at identifying. We have to identify with the culture around us, we have to live life in their shoes, we have to sing their songs, um, that sort of thing. And then this week, it, uh, Paul continues now, and he uses, he, he'll go into and he'll launch two illustrations to talk about now the balance. And what Paul is really good at doing in the scriptures, it takes um, w- uh, one side of the conversation, he swings us one way for us to start thinking in a new way. Because what Paul wants to do is he wants to train followers of Jesus how to think. He doesn't just want to give them pat answers, he goes, I want you to think I want you to be Christians who think. And so the way he does it, he challenges them by saying, hey, become all things to all people. Do it all for the sake of the gospel. But now he's going to swing the other way and go, but be careful. And there's a couple illustrations of a warning of of being self-disciplined, being self-controlled, and being careful. They don't swing so far to the other side that you've lost your identity as a follower of Jesus altogether. So that's what he'll do. And so if you have your Bible, look at verse 24. We're going to read to chapter 10, verse 13, and then I'll pray. Verse 24. So Paul uses his first analogy of an Olympian, uh, of of an athlete. Do you not know that in a race, all runners run, run, but only one gets the prize? So everyone runs, and only one gets the prize. Run in such a way as to get the prize. Everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. They do it to get a crown that will not last, but we do it to get a crown that will last forever. Therefore, I do not run like someone running aimlessly. I do not fight like a boxer beating the air. No, I strike a blow to my body and make it my slave so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified for the prize. For I do not want you to be ignorant of the fact, brothers and sisters, that our ancestors were all under the cloud and they all passed through the sea and they were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea And they all ate the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that accompanied them, and that rock was Christ. Nevertheless, God was not pleased with most of them, and their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. Now these things occurred as examples to keep us from setting our heart on evil things as they did. Verse 7, do not be idolaters. As some of them were, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in revelry. We should not commit sexual immorality, as some of them did. And in one day, 23,000 of them died. We should not test Christ, as some of them did. And they were killed by snakes. My favorite line here. And do not grumble, as some of of them did, and were killed by uh, the destroying angel. These things happened to them as examples and were written down as warnings for us on whom the culmination of the ages has come. So if you think you are standing firm... Be careful that you do not fall. No temptation has overtaken you except what is common to mankind. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will provide a way out so that you can endure it. That's our text. That's God's word. Let's pray. God, we just pray um, now that you would give us um, a, a path through this entire section of Scripture. That you would once again, as we've been looking at the last couple of Sunday mornings, Lord, that you would teach us how to live in a city like San Francisco and love this city, but do it for the sake of the gospel. That we would live our lives for the sake of the gospel, that we would live in this church for the sake of the gospel, that we would live lives that so identify with the culture around us, but in such a way that's completely different, that it causes the entire city to take notice. Make us that way, God. I pray that you would um, you would use me and speak through me today. I need your spirit. There's no way I can communicate these these sort of truths in my flesh, Lord. So um, we ask together that you would anoint me for this task in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Um, A couple of weeks ago, I had this um, existential crisis that might seem um, silly. That I don't even know if I'm really that proud of, but um, but it was true. I was driving home from Santa Barbara a couple weeks ago and daydreaming. Like I often do when I'm in my car alone. Actually, when I'm anywhere, I'm actually daydreaming a lot. And uh, I was listening to an audiobook, And the chapter was on limitations. Limitations that we should have as humanity, as humans, and as followers of Jesus. And I started thinking about my current stomach issues that manifest itself the last probably year. In this like sensation of a giant lump in my throat. And being short of breath. And stress always makes it worse, and it's been, it's been really bad the last um, couple of months. I did go to the doctor uh, this last week, so don't worry too much. Um, and I remember going to the doctor a year ago about this same issue. And uh, as I went to the doctor a year ago, this doctor gave me, uh, my doctor, they gave me a list of things I shouldn't eat. When this happens, Dave, you shouldn't eat these things. And this list was very long. And on this list included everything that was my favorite thing. Okay? <laughs> Like I mean, everything was on this list: caffeine and carbonation and spicy food. Everything was on this list. It it, it felt like everything was on this list except for like kale and like room temperature water. It's like (laughs) eat kale, room temperature water, and then you'll you'll feel really really good. And I did the list for like three weeks, and then not really for the last eleven months. (laughs) And I was driving um, home, listening to this chapter. And I had this thought as I was listening to this on limits and actually feeling the, the ailments that I, that, I was, that I felt the last several months. And I was starting to drive and listening to this chapter on Limitation. And I thought, maybe I should be living within, I should be limiting my diet for the sake of my health. I know a year ago, isn't that what your doctor said like a year ago? Yeah, but I, I didn't really hear it. <laughs> I heard, just do this for a while until it feels better than go back to doing what you like to do. But I was thinking during this, this, this chapter, like, what if I, I should limit everything I eat and start living under this limitation for the sake of my health? And maybe I can't eat all my favorite foods and drink my favorite drinks. But what that did was expose something even larger, and this is where I almost had a full-on breakdown. No joke. It started with food. i like, well, I want to eat that, and I want to drink that. And then I went through stages of depression, like denial and anger. I started going through all of these while I was driving, and I was seriously having this existential crisis. Like, I, I can't do this. And then I got to the root of it, or God did in my own heart, as I was driving, and it was, I don't like living with limits. I don't like, like living within limits. In my own life, I like living without any, li- I don't like, I like doing what I want without any consequence to my body. I think we all do. All of us want to be like Kanye and live with no limits. Like, that's all of us. We all want to live in a life where, like, I live with no limits. And this is why I had a full-on, like, what, what if I, I can't enjoy all the things I love to do because of, I had to live within this limitation. Paul, in his section on 1 Corinthians, is saying that he can live Completely free. He has the freedom to do whatever he wants. He's free. He's not bound to anyone. He's not bound to anyone financially. That's what he says at the beginning of chapter 9. He's not bound to, 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 to the to strict laws of Judaism anymore either. He's free from that. He's free from men. He's free from finances. He's free from marital obligations. He's not married. He's free. He can live life with no limits at all. But what Paul does with this freedom is he puts himself back under a slave's bondage. He takes his freedom and he places massive limits on his life. And why does he do that? Verse 23 in chapter 9 says, and this is right before our section, I should have included it in the whole thing, but I didn't. This is what Paul says, I do this for the sake, I do all of this for the sake of the gospel. I do all of this, I place myself under limitation. I live within limits all for the sake of of the gospel, that I may share, and the word there is koinonia, that I might have fellowship in in the gospel's blessings. I can do anything, Paul says. I can go anywhere. I'm smart, educated. He was a leader. I mean, according to scholars, he wasn't the best-looking guy in the world, but he had everything else going for him. But he says, I limit myself. I even place myself in harm's way for the sake of the gospel. And what Paul is trying to get across to the church in Corinth, through this conversation about food sacrificed to idols. And what Paul is trying to get across to the church in reality San Francisco is that he, not only does he do this, not only does he live within limits for the sake of the gospel, but you and I are to do the same thing. You are to live within limits for the sake of the gospel. I am supposed to live within limits for the sake of the gospel. You and I will have to place limits on our lives for the sake of the gospel, and that should not bum you out. That should excite us. There are certain things that you cannot do for the sake of the gospel. There are certain things that you have to do for the sake of the gospel, and Paul will use two illustrations to drive this point home. And the two illustrations we read, the first is an athlete, an Olympian, and the second is the Exodus and what happened during the Exodus journey. Now, before we get into these things, let me step back and talk about what this phrase, for the sake of the gospel, means. Because you might not understand this. Now, what does it mean? Uh, is Paul's a missionary, so he does it all for the sake of the gospel, and I understand that. He's a missionary. But me, I, you know, I'm in tech. Or me, I, I'm, I'm in um, retail, or I'm in finance, or what, whatever. I'm in the restaurant business. So how do I do everything for the sake of the gospel? Let me explain to you what this, for the sake of the gospel, means. Because if you're a follower of Jesus, we all fall underneath it. In Mark chapter 1, verse 17, Jesus begins his ministry, and he begins his ministry by walking along the Sea of Galilee, and he sees two fishermen, Simon and Andrew, and he says this very famous line. He says, you're fishing, I want, if you follow me, I will make you fishers of men. Do You guys remember this saying? Follow me, drop your nets and follow me, and I will send you out, I will, you can follow me and I'll send you out to fish for people, the NIV translates it. Fishers of men. Now, follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. This is a very confusing thing. People have used this to describe evangelism like you're going, you have to use the right lures and the right bait, you have to wait and you have to catch them and you have to clean them. Like like all this like weird whatever, you know. Um, But here's here's the basic point of fishing for men and women. Fishing wasn't like fishing is today. I was somewhere recently where pro bass fishing was on television. And I'm sorry, but this is not a subculture I understand like someone in a boat you know like throwing lures in a lake and pulling up you know smallmouth bass or largemouth trout I don't even know if I'm making any sense at all and then like showing it and and I imagine someone somewhere is like oh baby that is a beautiful fish it's like showing it in the camera and the camera's like all these different angles and then he lets it go like I don't I don't understand this culture okay but maybe you do maybe you're like I watch that all the time that's like my favorite show But fishing wasn't like that when Jesus called these to be fishers of men. It wasn't one man with one fishing pole hunting for fish with bait and lures. That's not what fishing was. Fishing was about gathering fish in large nets. It was about taking these fish who were scattered all over the lake and gathering them into the net. Fishing was gathering. Let me back up a little farther. When God placed humanity, when God created humanity, he placed them in the garden. And when we lived in the garden, we lived in perfect harmony and peace, and you've heard me say this a million times, the scriptures call that shalom. Everyone and everything lived in shalom with everything else. Everything got along. Animals got along with plants, plants got along with people, people got along with the environment. Everything was in harmony. Everything was weaved together in the fabric of creation. Everything worked together. And then sin entered into the world. And through Adam and Eve's grasp on being God, there was a, there was the, the, uh, the vandalism of Shalom. Shalom was destroyed. Brokenness and disharmony entered the world because of, of, of what humanity did. And there was brokenness in humanity, there was brokenness in the Garden of Eden, and once, what was once our home in the Garden of Eden, we were then scattered. We were kicked out of the garden, we were placed east of Eden, and eventually humanity was scattered all over the world farther and farther away from Eden, farther and farther away from the shalom and the presence and the peace of God. Humanity is scattered everywhere. When Jesus said, follow me and I will make you fishers of men, he was calling us into his mission of gathering from all over the world, from every people group and language on the planet, a people back to God. Gather a people back to God. That's what it's talking about. It's not talking about going out fishing for souls or like, I need to use the right lure. I have to use the right bait for this one. I have to catch them and then we clean them later on. It's nothing like that. It's like people are scattered all over the world in disharmony. Do you want to join me in gathering a people back to God? Do you want to do that? If you do, follow me. This, the scriptures call, is the gospel. Paul says that he becomes all things to all people to win them, to win them back to God. To save them. To bring them it back into God's family. To bring people into salvation. To bring people into the shalom of God once again. Paul says he does everything for the sake of the gospel. This is his whole life. This should be your whole life and my whole life. This is the follower of Christ's whole life. To join God in that renewal. Fishing for men and women. Gathering people into the family of God. This takes time this takes patience, this takes incarnation, this takes contextualization, this takes all the stuff that we've been talking about, but that's the point. We are, what we're here to do in San Francisco is to gather a people back to God. That's what we're here to do. Christian life is not just about sin management. A lot of people believe this, that once I'm saved, now I just got to manage my sin until the rapture or until I die and then it's over. That's not what it's about. There's no wonder why you can't get over it yourself because life is not about you. Christian life is not about you. It's about God gathering a people to make them whole and to make them holy. And we join Christ in that mission. Sorry, that was a little tangent. But the reason why I say that is when I say Paul does all this for the sake of the gospel, that's what he's talking about. All of us do this. All of us bring about the peace of God once again in San Francisco as we join God in doing these things. All of life is to be seen this way. N.T. Wright writes this. He says, The gospel will demand that you give up some of your rights and your freedoms, if, even if it feels like going into hard athletic training. And this is exactly what Paul does. For the sake of the gospel in Corinth, for the sake of the gospel in San Francisco, there are some things that you will have to do. There are some ways that you will have to limit your freedoms. And it will feel like you're going into specific hard, difficult training, but we do it for the sake of the gospel. And so Paul uses the first analogy, that of an athlete. Paul uses an Olympian as an illustration. Now, the Olympics took place in Athens, and it was going on at this time during uh, the writing of 1 Corinthians. The second biggest Olympic of type event was called the Isthmian Games, which was held in Corinth every four years. The two biggest events in the games, in the Olympic games and the Isthmian games, were racing and fighting. Those are the two games. Those are the games that everyone showed up to to watch, racing and fighting. At the end of the games, a winner got a crown, not a crown made of gold or silver or bronze, a crown made of leaves. Oftentimes, historians write, a crown made out of celery. You got a crown of celery, (laughs) and it was very perishable. And what did these athletes do with this, Do for this salary crown? What did they do to get this salary crown? They sacrificed everything for the sake of that prize. Everything. Olympians today get gold, silver, and bronze, but they do everything for the sake of that prize. Sports Illustrated said recently of a U.S. Olympic hurdler, uh, Lolo Jones. I want to say Yolo, but that's not her name. It said this: She she trained twelve years for an event that lasts twelve seconds. Twelve years of laser-focused determination for twelve seconds for that prize. Olympic athletes sacrifice so much for a single goal of winning a medal. So much they completely change their diets. They change the way they eat and what they eat and when they eat. They go through years and years of training. They sacrifice all sorts of things they enjoy. They sacrifice their family oftentimes, television, events, vacations, pie, everything for the sake of that goal. They uproot their entire lives and they move to a place with weather that more than likely matches when the Olympics will will be held and where they're held and the humidity factor there. And they train in places like that. And they move to facilities where they get better training. They sacrifice just about everything for the sake of a medal. They do all of this because they have one goal that prize. Now, you and I don't live like athletes in training. Like we started this whole thing, you and I like to live with no limits. I confess that there are parts of my diet where I want to live with no limits. There's probably parts of your life that you want to live with no limits, and this is why our life seems out of control. We can't control our eating. We eat too much or we eat too little. We can't control our time. We overcommit or we do nothing because we're filled with anxiety of choosing the wrong fun thing to do. So we have all these options and we don't choose anything because we might choose the wrong thing. We can't control our spending. We can't control our emotions. We live life out of control. And we think the answer is, when we go, how do we get in control? We think the answer is looking ourselves in the mirror, grabbing our own lapels and saying, get your life together, man. Get your life together. Practice self control. And you might be listening to this sermon going, what the pastor is telling me to do is to practice self-control. Look in the mirror and go, suck it up, man. You're in training. Practice self-control as if sheer willpower will get the job done. Paul is not talking about athletes having willpower. He's not saying, look at athletes. Look at their willpower. He's not doing that. He's not saying, look at their strength not to eat pie. He's not talking about willpower. Paul is saying that athletes have a greater affection than pie. They love something greater than television. They love something than overeating or oversleeping. Paul says that athletes love the prize. They want the prize. That's their goal, that's their aim. And because they love the prize, everything falls into proper order. Everything comes under control because they want the prize, because they love the prize. Because of the prize, an athlete doesn't overeat or undereat because of the prize. I have a prize I'm going for. And because of the prize, everything, now food will serve that prize. I don't overeat, but I don't undereat either. I don't oversleep, but I don't undersleep. I get, I think that I read athletes, you get, Olympia, Olympians get 8 to 10 hours a day and then a nap in the middle of the day. You're like, I want that part of Olympians' life. They don't oversleep, but they can't undersleep either. They don't overtrain, nor do they undertrain. There might be days when they want to, but they don't for the sake of the prize. Because they love the prize, because they want the prize, everything falls into order. Everything snaps to attention. Everything falls into place. This is what Paul is saying. For the sake of the prize, their whole lives now are lived differently because of the prize. When Paul talks about keeping the self under control... He is not saying, control yourself. He's saying, look at what they love. And what do they love? Celery. (laughs) This is freaking celery. It's a celery wreath around their heads. That's what they love. And Paul's saying, and this is what makes Paul's illustration so brilliant. What's your prize? That's their prize. And look what they do for it. What's your prize? Your prize are seeing people come into the kingdom of God. That's why Paul keeps on saying, what does Paul want to win this whole time? He he just said it three verses ago. I do this to win them. I do this to win them. I do this to win them. There is something about participating in the gospel that Paul goes, there's a prize that I'm running for. And it's seeing people brought into the family of God. Later in, in Scripture, Paul talks about this crown that we got of glory, this eternal crown of glory. And Paul is saying, what is your prize It's imperishable. It's in heaven for you. It's forever. They run for a salary prize and look at their lives. You, you are running for an imperishable crown. Do you love your prize? Do you want it? This illustration is not about earning your salvation. It's not about having to have certain amount of souls saved to get into heaven. It's about how an athlete, for the sake of the prize, will place his or her body under strict discipline for something perishable. And the point is, you and I stand to receive something eternal. That's the point. The illustration has a laser focus. You can't stretch the illustration too much or it breaks down. You can't say, well, all runners run, so only one of us gets saved at the end? Like, the first guy to the line gets to win? No, he's not saying that. You're saying I'm competing against other Christians? No, he's not saying that either. Like, the illustration breaks down after a while. You can't look at it. You've got to just look at it for what it is. He's just saying, look at athletes. Look at the way they train. They do it for an a perishable crown, you have an imperishable crown, run to win. Have a laser focus for the sake of the gospel. Paul's saying for the sake of the gospel, like an Olympian in training, everything falls under that. That means that you and I won't over-identify with the culture of San Francisco, but we don't don't under-identify with it either. We don't have our holy huddle here at Everett Middle School on Sunday morning. This is not a holy huddle. But then again, we don't just like go into the world to where we look, we look exactly like everyone else. There's, a, there's this tension that we have in the middle. We don't spend too much on ourselves, but we don't save too much either. We don't oversleep and become lazy, but we don't undersleep and become filled with anxiety. Because of the sake of the prize, everything starts to fall in line. Because we want the gospel, because we love the gospel, because we are fishers of people, everything falls into line under that. Loving the gospel for the sake of the gospel causes causes everything to fall into proper place. See, the Christian life is not one orgy of self-gratification, but a disciplined life focused on things that really matter. The Christian life is not just this one big orgy of self-gratification. You didn't come into the faith to do whatever you want to do. But we live in a culture like this. We live in a society. We live in a culture. We live in a time where it's all about us. Recently, Time Magazine put out an article called The Me, Me, Me Generation. And it's a girl doing a little selfie there. <laughs> a little selfie pose. My favorite article, though, was a follow-up to this article by um, Elspeth Reeve, if I'm saying her name right. She, she wrote in The Atlantic, and she wrote a, an article called Every, Every, Every Generation Has Been the Me, Me, Me Generation. And in there, she, she writes, Millennials... Are the me, me, me generation, writes Joel Joel Stein for the cover of Time magazine, which is apparently a marked departure from the baby boomers, who are just the plain old me generation. One me, no caps. And who created the me decade of the 1970s, and who coined the phrase, enough about me, what do you think about me, in the 1980s, when they were raising the next narcissist generation X. And what she does brilliantly, she goes through and cites all the cultural writers who have called their generation narcissistic. And the point is clear in her article. She says, it's not the social media generation of right now, it's not the MTV generation, nor is it the 1907 issue of The Atlantic that called that generation, worshiping, quote, the cult of individualism, worship of the brazen calf of the self. 1907, like, that's the narcissistic generation. Every generation has, be the, has been the me generation is what she writes and she's true there's something about us that we are we're bent inward this is the the definition of sin is being bent inward about ourselves all we care about is ourselves and when we become a Christian we go through this series of this whole reimagining life where we don't think about ourselves where it's not about us this is where the church cannot become like the world Followers of Jesus do not exist for themselves. Even in this context, the discipline that Paul is calling us for is not a discipline for your own individual race. You might hear this illustration and go, you know what, i got to run to win. I have to run to win. No. The point, if you read it in context, is that we have to run to win. All of us do. And the way that Paul does this is he says we have to sacrifice for one another. We have to lay down our rights for one another for the sake of the gospel. Paul starts the whole section like this. 1 Corinthians 8.1 Knowledge puffs up while love builds up. We can't lose the thread of Paul's argument here and slip into thinking of spiritual discipline in an individualistic way. The self-control to which Paul is calling us to is a discipline by giving up our privileges for the sake of others in the community. This is what Paul is calling us to. I'm going to lay my life down for my, the people in my community group. I'm going to lay my life down for the people that are sitting around me. I'm going to lay my individual rights down for their sake. This will take Paul into the next illustration, which might seem a very, like a very confusing illustration. What Paul is doing is he's writing the Christians, who were mostly Gentile, into the story of Israel. Israel's story is our story. So when we read the Old Testament, we have to know that we've been grafted into this story. That's our story. Our father Abraham, which is a beautiful thing that Paul does being Jewish. He draws us Gentiles. If you're not Jewish in here, I know we have a lot of uh, uh, Jewish people here. But, but those of us that are, not, that, are, that are Gentiles, Paul draws all of us in going, that history is our history now. And this is what Paul does. This is what Paul tells the Corinthians. Remember the Corinthians thought they were so smart and they had so much knowledge. This is what Paul does. He, he kind of banters with them a little bit. He says, so you think you're spiritual because you've been baptized, right? Cool. That's cool. All right. That's, that's neat. So is Israel. Israel was baptized. They were baptized through the Red Sea. Okay. So they were just like, just like you guys. Um, so you think you have God's presence and favor in your life. That's cool. All right. Right on. Um, so did Israel. They had a cloud. They had a glory cloud. A cloud of glory that was all around them. That was leading them by day and a pillar of fire by night. They had God's presence too. Oh, so you think you have spiritual food because you take communion. That's cool. All right, right on. So did Israel. They were fed manna from heaven. And guess what? God got mad at them too. See, they thought they were free. But in their freedom, they set their minds and their hearts on evil. They thought they were just free from Egypt. And they were going. They had all God's favor. And God was feeding them. And guess what? Their hearts went astray as well don't think because you come up to communion don't think that because you've been baptized that that's like a special formula they can do whatever you want they thought the same thing too and guess what happened they died in the wilderness their bodies were scattered everywhere they were eaten by snakes an angel came and killed some they became idolaters all over again they indulged in sexual immorality they grumbled and they complained And so Paul writes us into their story, and he says this in verse 11. These things happened to them as examples and were written down as warnings for us. To whom the culmination of ages has has come. So if you think you are standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. These were Christians in Corinth. There were Christians in Corinth that were attending meals and parties in the temples of pagan gods just as they had done before becoming a follower of Jesus. They they started doing everything they did before they became a follower of Jesus. In their view, this was merely a normal aspect of social life and culture. Like, okay, people do this in in Corinth. People do this in San Francisco. It's a normal part of life here in the city. No danger, no harm, they thought. And here's why they they didn't think it was that dangerous to participate in what their, their city did. They have knowledge that there's one God... And that knowledge sets them free from the petty rules of religious life. I can do what I want to do. We're free. And not only that, they have passed through baptism and they take communion. Therefore, they're clean. They're safe from falling under idol, an idol's curse or whatever an idol can do to them. If they eat food, food sacrificed to idols. Last week we said we should contextualize. We should identify with our neighbors. We should walk in their shoes. But Paul has a beautiful way of pushing back on the tension here. The tension of identifying with our culture, but with a warning, not to think that you are invincible. That secular culture doesn't have real power to draw you away from the love of God. So let me try to share with you an example of this. And I probably wouldn't use this example anywhere else but this church in this city. We might even strike it from the audio. Or give a San Francisco edition to the audio, I don't know. But two people that I've seen really miss it, two, two, two forms of Christians, two, two types of Christians I've seen really miss it when it comes to what Paul is talking about here, are those Christians that you might meet, and there might be even some of us in here that will not, and this, I'm not talking about people who've struggled with alcoholism in the past, I'm just talking about a Christian that grew up, grew up in, in and around church, that will not go into a bar or a club, they will not do it. They think, as soon as I walk in there, I'm unclean. As soon as I walk in there, I, I'm, I'm, I'm a sinner. As soon as I walk in there, I'm, I'm done. I will not walk into a bar. I will not walk into a club. I will not do it. I've seen people like that, and they, and they despise anyone who does. Do you're a Christian? You go into a bar? Oh, my gosh. How do, you, how do you live with you? Are you even a Christian? I don't even know if you're saved. And I have a tree is known by its fruit, and it just looks like your fruit, just alcoholism. That's what it looks like. <laughs> I've seen that Christian a lot. Here's the other Christian I've seen. I'll go into bars and I won't even think twice. I'll go to any bar and any club, without even thinking about. It. I'm free. I'm a, I, yeah. I, I know. It's just it's just alcohol and there's people that do, doing stuff. Whatever. I know. I know. I know what that is. I'm smart enough to say no. I know when when to say when. I know when I'm hitting that level of, of alcohol in my going through my veins where I know I I know I know all things. I'm not even gonna think about. it. I'm just gonna walk into any place I want to. Those two extremes Paul is pushing back on both of them for those that go oh my gosh that place that's that, that just that's well, how can you live in San Francisco how can you even even walk around Castro Street how can you even do that as a Christian Paul would push back and go i become all things to all men to those that walk around no big deal whatever just what it's just life like what I just walk into any place I I, I know I know better I know this Paul pushes back when you say be careful And the reason why Paul pushes back on both of those those people is that neither of them are really thinking about the gospel. The first person isn't thinking about that's how Christ actually came into the world. He went into places where the religious people who thought you were um, impure if you went in, Christ went into all of those places. But he went into those places for the sake of the gospel. And Paul pushes against those that will just casually walk into a, a temple where meat is being sacrificed to idols and they'll just start indulging in all this meat because they're so knowledgeable. Paul's saying, be careful. Because we all know those people who, have, who, who thinks they have freedom from everything. I'm free to do whatever I want and we all know those people who because of their freedom, they destroy their life. Because of their freedom, they overdose, they ruin their family, their marriage, and ultimately their faith in Christ. That's the warning that Paul's pushing back on. You think you can just walk into any place? The tension looks something like this. The Bible never says to avoid all bars and clubs. It just doesn't say that. That's a rule the Bible never puts on us. But you would be foolish not to think that those places don't hold power to lead us into idolatry, sexual immorality, and even eventual unbelief. When you think too little of them or you think too much, Paul wants you to think of everything for the sake of of the gospel. Everything. So Christian, follower of Jesus, you'd be foolish to walk into a club and not think, there is a real power in this club. And there is real power to let my defenses down and to fall into compromise, eventually fall into sin, eventually fall away altogether. That can really happen. But you would also be equally foolish to go, I'm just going to live in my house and I'm going to burn like Jesus candles all day. And I'm going to be like, The Bible on tape all all the time. I'm not going to leave my house and don't like, not on any social media. Just avoid everything. You'd be foolish to do that as well. We're not called to be Amish. That's not our call. (laughs) Not to say anything bad about Amish, God bless them, but that's not our call at all. That is not what Jesus called us to do. He calls us to be salt and light. Now, does this get messy? Yes, the tension is messy. But Paul wants us, to, and, and the scriptures, I keep saying Paul. This is his letter, by the way, so I guess I can attribute it to him. He, he wants to train our minds to think. Followers of Jesus, would you please just think. Start thinking. Start disciplining yourself for the sake of the gospel. This is what we're called to do. For the sake of the gospel, what are you building? For the sake of the gospel, what are you sacrificing for? For the sake of the gospel. Do you love the gospel? Do you love everything to where everything falls into order because of that? Self control is not you beating yourself up. Paul, when Paul says I, I beat myself up, he's not literally like, oh, boom, 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 like, like beating himself up. He just is, has a brilliant way of turning the analogy on its head. It's like I'm not a, like a boxer fighting, fighting. The, uh, that was a horrible boxing guy, but <laughs> let me get, I don't know. I don't know how to box, but actually, I do know how to box. So don't fight me. Um, Paul's not saying, I'm not like a boxer, uh, shadow boxing. And he turns the analogy around. He goes, actually, my my punches go towards disciplining my body. And he's not hating his body. He's not saying that. He's actually, I use my body as an instrument for the glory of God, just like an athlete does. An athlete doesn't hate his body or her body. The body is the instrument to win the gold medal. So they love their body very much. They keep it in control. That's what Paul's saying. I discipline my body and my body is now the instrument for the kingdom of God to break in into into the city. I use my body as an instrument for the kingdom of God to advance. That's what Paul is saying when he says, I beat up my body. And then, this is how Paul closes, this is how he concludes. Paul has a beautiful way. I was telling the the pre-prayer group before, Paul has a beautiful way of like slapping us and then hugging us. Like, what are you thinking, fool? And then he just comes in and goes, give me a hug. And he does that. He's like slaps us with the Exodus story, but then he says this in verse thirteen: "No temptation has overtaken you except what is common to mankind, and God is faithful." That is a breath of fresh air as, uh, when you're reading through chapter ten. God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear, but when you are tempted, He will also provide a way out so that you can endure it. Pause. This beautiful way of holding intention, both assurance. And warning. He warns us, and the warning should be there; it should stand. But he assures us that God is faithful. Here are the two sins Paul is trying to get us keep us from committing: sin of presumption and sin of despair. Presumption would be those in here who think they can live any way they want and have all the blessings of Christ. That's presumptuous. You are presuming on the grace of God. Be careful. Many followers of God before you have made that presumption and ended up missing all of it. But he wants us to not also not to commit the sin of despair. Despair would be those in here who think that they can't make it any longer. Life is too hard. The temptation is too much. Listen to Paul. Listen to the scriptures. God is faithful. Your temptation is very common. Even though you think you're the only one, you're not. Not just that, God is faithful. He's with you, Paul writes. He will not let you be tempted beyond anything that will crush you, even though it feels like it is crushing you sometimes. God will give you respite. God will give you times of peace. God will provide ways out. He will give you endurance. Paul always keeps warning and assurance in tension. And this is what he does for us. Church, I want to exhort you as we're in this series Do everything for the sake of the gospel. Start to think. Start to think how you're spending your time. And I don't want you to fall under this delusion that you have to beat your body to make it, to to subdue it under willpower. That is not what Paul says. It's actually love. Love builds up, Paul writes. That controls this whole section. Love builds up. As you have love for Jesus and, the, and his gospel, everything will fall in its proper place. Everything will. And so discipline for you, discipline for you might mean this. As a follower of Jesus, discipline for you might look like you not oversleeping and for the sake of the gospel waking up to hear the voice of God in the morning. You might have to just wake up and go, God, speak to me. Fill my heart with your presence. Fill my heart with your thoughts. Fill my heart. And, and here's the things that I'm dealing with right now here. God, here are the things that are going to fill my day as I go out into my day. This last week I've been meditating a lot on Mark chapter 2 when Jesus, in the midst of a crazy busy season of ministry, he woke up early. He went alone to a solitary place before it was light outside. And there he prayed. And after praying there for a while, the disciples came up to him and said, Jesus, where have you been? Everyone is looking for you. This is what I found to be true in my life. I have a choice. The first voice I can hear in the morning is, everyone is looking for you. Or I can wake up a little bit earlier and hear the voice of God. A lot of us wake up late to our emails and basically the voice is, everyone is looking for you, and you're filled with anxiety. Or as a disciplined follower of Jesus, for the sake of the gospel, you can wake you up and go, I want to hear the voice of God this morning. And would you order my day, and you would put my heart in its right place. I want to close with this passage of scripture in Hebrews. It's almost as if the writer of Hebrews um, knows about what Paul is writing here He was like in, no no one knows who wrote Hebrews. But it's like the person who did was like in the congregation of Corinth and read Paul's letter when the writer writes, therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, he's talking about a stadium there. Since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. And let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and the perfecter of our faith. For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Why did Christ run his race to win acceptance from God? No, he had acceptance from God. To have peace with God? No, he was one with the Father. The joy that was set before Christ was you. You were his joy that he ran his race for. And once that gets just deep into our heart and our soul, once that gets down to the deepest places, we're going to see that that's the goal. Our prize, our goal, what we're trying to win at the end of this thing is Christ. We're running for Christ. So let's keep our eyes fixed on him. Let's pray. Jesus, I thank you. That you are the author, the finisher, the pioneer and the perfecter of our faith. And you've ran this race before us and we can keep our eyes fixed on you. And so I pray that you would encourage us where those of us that are weary, that need encouraging, that you would encourage us, those of us who are just flat out lazy and are just feeling like we're running with all of these, the weight of sin is just holding us down and we can't run. It's like we're running in mud or something. We're running with something holding onto our ankles or under our wrist or on our back. I pray we lay those things aside. I thank you for that exhortation from the authors of, author of Hebrews that we can lay aside those things. May we do that now. In Jesus' name, amen.